I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in our series, God and the Whole Person. How does the story of resurrection shape what we believe about the body, about God, and about the very nature of meaning and existence? And we are here because of a first century rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was often a teacher of very strong words. Sometimes he employed subtlety, sometimes metaphor and symbolism. He loved parables, but he was often a teacher of very strong words. When it came to the truth, he did not suggest. He talked like this all the time. He talked about right and wrong, or in his language, good and evil, darkness and light, sheep and goats, life versus death. Those are bold claims, but really, lots of people have done that kind of thing throughout history and still do. And all people, religious in the traditional sense or otherwise, believe in a right and wrong way to live and think and be based on philosophy or upbringing or religion or science or social justice or politics or social media, whatever it is, everyone has some kind of answer to the plaguing riddle of why. Why all this? What do we do with it? And where is it going? Of course, the Bible has an answer to all these questions. And whether you buy the Bible's answers or not, the fact is that scholars and historians who study the Bible, Christian or otherwise, sometimes atheist, agree that the beginnings and eventual proliferation of this tiny grassroots movement called Christianity is something of a question mark. How did it happen and why? It all hangs on a single event that, for many, is ultimately unbelievable. So shift one specific aspect of the Bible story and this movement spanning more than 2,000 years across the globe, all ages and cultures and genders and ethnicities and nationalities and stories, shift one thing and all of it goes away. One non-negotiable for Christians at the top of the die-for category. If it isn't true, then all of this is a lie. All of our critics would be right All of our little songs voided, our symbols and traditions would be little more than empty pageantry, and the teaching and practice to which we have given our lives all in tribute to a liar and a fraud. To undo Christianity itself, all you have to do is leave Jesus in the grave, leave his bones collecting dust somewhere in Palestine. Without today, all of this is pointless. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, you can put your hand in the air. Our friend Lexi will put one in your hands. It's yours to keep. When you get one, or if you have yours already, Matthew chapter 27. If it weren't for the scenes that we are about to read, there would be no gospel of Matthew. It would hardly be a story worth telling. Without the scenes that follow, there would be no church. No Jesus movement, the thing once known to the ancient world as the way, would have already vanished had it appeared at all in obscurity, hardly a blip 
on the annals of history, maybe even less than that. Before the passages we are about to read, Jesus of Nazareth has died in the story. He has been executed as an enemy of the state by the Roman Empire. He has died a cursed, humiliating death. His movement is now in shambles. His reputation has been destroyed publicly. And now, let's read the part of the story that changes everything. Look down at Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 55. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, mentioning someone by name had the same value in the first century as it does today. It's kind of a way of uniquely honoring that individual. Even more so in first century writings when both ink and papyrus were precious resources in short supply. So Matthew, the author of this biography of Jesus, is acknowledging that though Jesus has been abandoned by his friends, by his apprentices, these precious few women deserve to be acknowledged and honored for their presence in all of this horror. The story has taken a horrific turn and there they are. And Matthew depicts Jesus' female disciples as uniquely deserving of honor. In first century documents, women were often deemed unworthy of mention in historic details. If you remember earlier in Matthew's gospel, actually, the author doesn't even count women present in the scene where Jesus feeds thousands of people and says, and I quote, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. They don't count. But here he writes, Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And he lists the women's names before the men to honor them in order of their recognized faithfulness. Matthew tells us that, quote, many women, not men, cared for Jesus in his death. Now, scholars recognize this as one of the great arguments for the historical reliability of this account. If you are a first-century Jewish man documenting history, you don't hang the credibility of your testimony on the witnesses of women, especially when doing so highlights the ineptitude of the male disciples who were actually the ones telling the story. It would discredit your account, no one would believe you, and it would not be uh, considered historically verifiable or, or have historical reliability, unless... That's just the way that it happened. Scholars actually call this the criteria of embarrassment. If you're making things up, make men the heroes. Make yourself the hero. It would make your story a much easier pill to swallow for the first century imagination. But in Matthew's gospel, women anoint Jesus for his burial. Women follow Jesus to the cross. And women, as you'll see in a minute, first find him afterward and are consequently first appointed to teach the men about what has taken place. And the story goes on, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had, self, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, the Roman governor, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Now, again, the inclusion of a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph is more than just kind of a factual aside. Matthew includes in his biography of Jesus several hardcore teachings about the corrupting power of money and possessions. In fact, one quote from Jesus in Matthew's gospel is that it is nearly impossible for a well-off person to enter the kingdom of God. But here in the story, this rich man is willing to spend his own money, 
use up his own resources to put his reputation on the line by buying a grave for who was, in the eyes of nearly everyone at this point, a humiliated criminal and a false messiah. One commentator wrote, Joseph represents a member of the community willing to risk his resources for the sake of one in extreme need, namely the crucified Jesus who is in solidarity with the least. So Matthew, in other words, is fulfilling Jesus' promise that though it is almost impossible for a person with lots of money to be saved, this little detail proves Jesus was right when he said that. With God, all things are possible. Bruner adds, Jesus had promised that a miracle could happen, the miracle of moneyed people dethroning money and enthroning Jesus, the miracle of genuine discipleship. So Matthew is continuing his motif of unlikely people, women, rich people, anointed by God to serve Jesus in his hour of need. Women who are unlikely, at least in the cultural context of their day, and a rich man who was unlikely in the gospel's context, in the context of Jesus' teaching. Someone has to care for Jesus because the people who should be present are nowhere to be found in the story. All of them have fled, abandoned Jesus, left him behind. In Matthew's story, the disciples of John the Baptist, if you know that, when John gets executed, his disciples show up, they come and they take his body after their leader is executed. But here, Jesus' friends are nowhere to be found. For all they know, Jesus, their beloved teacher, their best friend, the one that they called Lord and Messiah, was brutalized and dumped in an unmarked grave or left on the cross to rot or cut down for wild animals, as all were customs for people who died by crucifixion, especially those who were poor or criminals or for those who had no loved ones to come and claim them. If Joseph, the rich man from Arimathea, had simply provided a grave for a stranger, that gesture would be considered a basic act of charity amongst first century Jews who were honestly kind of well documented for their charity. But Joseph provides, the story says, a new rock-cut tomb, which one scholar describes as, and I quote, an extravagant act of devotion. Look at verse 59. Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Now, the details may seem weird, but they remind us that Matthew intends to record actual historical events rather than kind of create a legendary mythos. The tomb is specifically mentioned as new because otherwise it may have had other bodies in it making it a kind of a, a likely case for mistaken identity. Somebody would say, hey, a body's missing from this tomb, and then anyone could have said, well, which one? We have no idea of knowing. It could be anyone. And again, in the story, it's the women recognized by name, and notice Matthew places the same two women who we've just read saw Jesus die now at the tomb. Now they see Jesus' grave, and they verify with their own eyes that he goes into it dead. Verse 62, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate, Roman governor. Sir, they said, remember that word for in just a minute. Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal the body, and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception would be worse than the first. Now, there's a kind of brilliant literary flourish here that's lost in translation from Greek to English. The word 
with which the chief priest addressed Pilate, the Roman governor. My Bible translates as sir. It's actually kurios in Greek, which ordinarily is translated as lord because it, used, it was used to address someone who is recognized to have absolute authority. So in the rest of Matthew's gospel, only Jesus and God are referred to as Lord. Matthew, the author, is saying that by begging Rome to execute Jesus, Israel's religious leaders have given themselves over to the empire. Now Caesar is their Lord. Pilate is their Lord. So in verse 63, the religious leaders, they come to the governor, and more literally they say, Lord, we remember while he was still alive, that deceiver. That is the dichotomy. The empire is now Lord. Jesus is a deceiver. The corruption of the religious establishment is complete. Unless the religious leaders receive the full brunt for you know, their opposition to the kingdom, notice they, unlike Jesus' own disciples, are the only people in the story who actually remember that Jesus went around saying he was going to come back from the dead. This is Matthew's ingenious, artistic way of incriminating everyone including himself in the story. But Pilate, remember, he wants to keep the peace. He doesn't want a riot to break out. So he wants to get the whole thing behind him. In verse 65, he says, take a guard, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. You go do it. So they went, they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Then in chapter 28, verse 1, we read, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now, the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and ended at sundown on Saturday. So this is now the dawn of Sunday morning. And again, it's the women mentioned by name. In all four Gospels, Mary Magdalene is the one character in the Gospel story documented with such unwavering fidelity to Jesus, even beyond his death. She was there when he died, there when he was buried, and here she appears again, though for all she knows, he's still dead. In Mary's mind, Jesus has left her, but she cannot bear to leave him. She is, I think for us, an icon of steadfast faithfulness. And the scene is actually pathetic. Where in the world are all the people? Where are the people that hosannaed Jesus into the city just a few days ago? Where are the people who were healed by Jesus? And where the heck are his friends? The entire Jesus movement has been reduced to two women whose testimony no one would have taken seriously in the first century. It's almost as if God favors the lowliest and most unlikely of believers on the fringes of society, those cast out by the culture and, and kind of looking down, looked down on by society. And then we read in verse 2, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And now remember, though the story records some pretty incredible events, Matthew intends his biography of Jesus as a factual eyewitness account of history, hard as that is for many people to believe. He does not record the specific moment or the intimate details of what happens inside the tomb because he didn't see it. He can only record what he saw or what was communicated to him or what someone else saw and reported back. So we read in verse 3, The angel's appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Wonderful bit of comedy from Matthew here. The man inside the tomb was presumed to be dead. Now he's alive. The men who are outside and should be alive are dead. Then verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. 
For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. Again, something kind of lost in translation here is the angels emphasizing to the women. More literally, he says, don't you be afraid. The women who are Jesus' disciples, unlike the guards, they have nothing to fear in the resurrection. Remember the story told us that the guards were terrified? And he's like, hey, you guys don't be afraid. These other two, I don't know about them. And then the angel calls Jesus the crucified man, which is odd given that previously in Matthew's gospel, Jesus was called Lord, Son of Man, Son of God, King of the Jews. But in chapter 28, his only title is Jesus and the crucified man. Again, Matthew's brilliant subtlety in highlighting the lowliness of Jesus, even in his greatest moment of exultant, victorious glory. What makes him Lord in the first place? The very thing that should make him not Lord, the crucified man. I love it. The angel goes on in verse 6, he is not here. He has risen just as he said. There it is. This line solidifies one fundamental reason that today is the most sacred, most cherished celebration for all disciples of Jesus around the world and throughout history. The resurrection of Jesus is not just some outrageous thing that happened once upon a time. It is the complete validation and vindication of Jesus of Nazareth, everything he taught, everything he did. He is risen just like he said. If Jesus is raised then what Jesus said was true. And the God to which Jesus attributed his authority has been affirmed and exalted in this collaborative undoing of death itself. He has risen just like he said. To further validate this incredible claim, the angel goes on in verse 6, come and see the place where he lay. The angel does not say, don't you dare ask any questions. You just need to have faith and believe what I say. The angel doesn't say, what, what more evidence do you need? Take my word for it. I got clothes like lightning and, or whatever. You know, he's a freaking angel. Come, come see for yourself. He says, this was and is the invitation of God in the face of predictable, you know, puzzlement, baffling, confusion, doubt, despair. Come and see for yourself. A scholar Dale Bruner comically observes, the Christian does not get a lobotomy when he or she makes the decision to be a disciple. Jesus wants his people to be honest, to think about their faith, and to be able to investigate its problems. The angel's command to empirical investigation is wonderfully freeing and rightly heard. It can protect the church from anti-intellectualism. Verse 7, then the angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples. The first commissioned witnesses of the resurrection, once again, were women. Incredible given that the testimony of women was not even legally acceptable in the first century Jewish court of law. If you're making this up, put men here in the story. It is, as Paul would later write in Corinthians, God using what is weak in the world's eyes to shame the strong. The women are now going to teach the men what they have seen and learned from their faithfulness. The angel continues in verse 7, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. This is an actual event in space-time. Jesus was there, past, he isn't there now, present, you will see him again, future. He isn't there. 
His body, his physical, corporeal form is somewhere else. Jesus hasn't been raised in spirit. He hasn't been raised as an idea. His actual dead should be decomposing body just got up and walked the heck out of that tomb that for all anyone knew would just house his skeletal remains until they became dust. If Jesus had been raised in spirit or as an idea, the angel might have said, he's not here, he's everywhere. He's all around you. He's in your heart in keeping with many modern progressive pantheistic spiritualities that argue for God in all things. But Jesus is not there because he has in his physical flesh and blood living body got up and walked out and headed elsewhere. This is real, not a dream, not an idea. And incredibly, Jesus, king, victorious over death, God in the flesh, he has the fallen, failed, abandoning disciples in his mind. Not only is Jesus raised, he is faithful to those he loved, even in the wake of their unbelievable faithlessness. And I love how wonderfully unadorned this future meeting is. The angel just says, you will see him there. There's no host of angels. There's no heavenly fanfare. Who needs them now? Simply seeing with your own eyes this man who was dead and now lives, that'll probably be more than enough, trust me. The angel isn't communicating a surreal spiritual phenomena, but an actual earthly physical event. So in verse 8, the women hurried away from the tomb, listen to this, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. One scholar I read this week likened this kind of dual emotional experience to what one experiences like when you get married or, or maybe having kids, fear and joy in the same wonderful place. It could have been that in their joy, they were afraid this news was simply too good to be true, but that did not stop them from running. I love that detail. And they won't have to wait long because look at verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. And then this, this is one of my favorite parts of the Easter story. Greetings, he said. <laughs> it, it really is what it sounds like. It's a greeting literally comparable to our English, hi. <laughs> Jesus is the incarnation of God as evidenced by his victory over death, but he is also a human being, apparently with a sense of humor, who says, hi. And these two doctrines, that Jesus is God and a human being so precious to the church for more than 2,000 years are again emphasized as verse 9 goes on. They came to him, listen to this, clasped his feet and worshipped him. He has feet. He is a human with physical flesh and blood, a body, but he's more than that. They worship him as if he is God himself. This is unheard of for a first century Jewish person to worship a man in a flesh and blood body as if they are God. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. The single most repeated command in the entire gospel, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So Jesus, again, calls those who abandoned and denied and betrayed him, the, the word he uses to refer to those people, brothers. Their sin and faithlessness hasn't changed who he believes they are. The resurrection is more than God's vindication of Jesus. It is the forgiveness and eradication of evil and unfaithfulness. It is the defeat of sin itself. After all Jesus has been through, 
Jesus wants to relieve the self-inflicted agony of sin. He does not intend to emphasize or ignore it as human beings prefer one or the other. He is going to see his brothers. A German New Testament scholar and historian that I read this week, who's not a Christian, does not believe Jesus was raised from the dead, wrote that, and I quote, the only thing we can certainly say to be historical about these accounts is that there were resurrection appearances in Galilee and in Jerusalem soon after Jesus' death. I read that and said, what? Go back. He goes on. This is a real quote. Look it up. He says, the, his name is, oh man, I'm going to try to say it, Gerd Ludemann. Maybe that's right. That sounds right. Yeah, it doesn't sound like I did it too bad. Yeah, I saw an umlaut and I just skipped over it. He goes on to say, these appearances cannot be denied. Not a Christian, not a theist. Before adding, but did the reason, risen Jesus in fact reveal himself to them? So he, he agrees they saw something, but he doesn't know what it is. How then can we certainly say to be historical the resurrection appearances of Jesus? Now, Ludeman argues for something called the vision theory. He wrote that the appearances of Christ can be explained as mass psychosis or mass hysteria. Um, but everyone kind of had the same exact hallucination at the same time, which doesn't usually happen, but it seems to him more plausible than a dead guy getting back up and walking around. And there are more arguments like these in kind of non-Christian New Testament scholarship. One is called the stolen body hypothesis. I'm sure you can figure that one out for yourself. But why would the people who stole his body risk their lives and abandon their worldviews for something they knew for sure was a lie with nothing to gain but humiliation and persecution and death? So there's a problem with that one. This is not just my take on it. This is in scholarship. Another called the swoon hypothesis argues that Jesus kind of fell into a coma and he was wrongly presumed to be dead and buried. And then he gathered his wits and woke up and he got his strength back and he walked out of the tomb. But this kind of lost traction in academia as well. When one kind of imagines the awful, brutalized, septic state of Jesus' ravaged body when supposedly he hobbled out of the grave, malnourished and nearly dead. This guy inspired unprecedented first-time belief in a bodily resurrection from the dead. I don't know. Or would his disciples have seen him and be like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, you don't look so good. We need to get you into a hospital. And there are more like these. Look them up. There's one called the lost body hypothesis. And this is, I kid you not, an earthquake mentioned in Matthew made Jesus' body fall in a crack. And that's where it went. There's one, called, <laughs> there's one called the substitution hypothesis. This is my favorite one. Jesus had a twin who went around claiming to be him after he died. I'm not making these up. They sound ridiculous. But the point is that obviously the efforts to explain away the resurrection of Jesus are actually understandable. And they belong to people who aren't Christians. It makes sense. Ordinarily, dead people don't seem to come back to life very often. It is, for many, an understandably difficult thing to believe. But why would people who don't follow Jesus, let alone scholars and historians and academics, feel the need to explain away the resurrection in the first place? Why not simply say, look, the whole story is bogus and that's that? The reason is that the details of the historicity of Jesus on which nearly all historians agree create this frustrating enigma. On this, virtually all credible historians, Christian or otherwise, agree. Jesus was alive as an actual person of history. He gathered a movement around the idea of a Jewish Messiah. He was crucified as an enemy of the state, humiliated as a false Messiah. And then Jesus' followers began worshiping him. And they claimed that he had been raised to life in a body, and they worshipped him as 
God. And that belief proliferated amongst those who would know for sure if what they were saying was not true. And it spread in a time and place where the tomb of Jesus was well known, where anyone interested could just go see it for themselves. It spread amongst believers who, by believing it, put themselves at great social, political, and religious risk and gained nothing. It spread with power and momentum amongst Jewish monotheists who had never believed anything like this, who began to worship a humiliated, executed human criminal as God incarnate. It's that leap that so perplexes then and now. Because historians don't argue that the disciples didn't actually believe Jesus had been raised. Clearly, they did. This is well documented. But how and why? Some have gone as far as to explain it with mass hallucination or an earthquake or a secret twin. Why is it that, for many historians, it's more plausible that tons of people had the exact same hallucination or that Jesus had a secret twin than believing the early Christians rewrote their entire worldviews and threw their lives away for something they knew for certain wasn't true. It's more believable that Jesus was in a coma, that his body fell in a crack, that, than it is to believe that his followers made the whole thing up and died for no good reason at all. Clearly, Jesus went into that tomb, and with every reason in the world not to believe it, and virtually no logical, practical, or self-serving reason to believe it, people began to argue that he came out of the tomb alive. Only disciples of Jesus believe this in resurrection of the body. Resurrection is the creed of time and space and matter. Yes, we are souls and we are bodies. Yes, there is a spiritual realm overlapping the physical one, but in resurrection, God enters matter. He moves his hands in time and space and raises physical bodies up from the graves intended to hold them forever. Again, this from Bruner, God did not need a fetus for the incarnation, water for his son's baptism, a cross for his son's death, or a cadaver for his son's bodily resurrection. God can squeeze water from a stone but God used all these earthly realities to do the great work of world salvation. Why does Jesus being raised matter so deeply to the church? The true non-negotiable creed of all disciples of Jesus for centuries all around the world. Because if Jesus is risen, his God is the true God. If Jesus is risen, then the great universal dilemma of death has been resolved. But more than that, the great universal dilemma of meaninglessness has been resolved. God is alive. Our story does not end in the tragedy of death. And because of this, the story matters. If God acted in time and space, then we are not alone. Life is not meaningless. Death does not have the final say. Now, if I took a poll of this room, everyone here who follows Jesus, and I asked you why, why are you a Christian? Why did you take up with this strange, divisive first century rabbi whenever you did? I doubt many, if any, would say, well, because of many convincing reasons to validate the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. We are not logic-based computers. 
God created us with faculties for emotion and experience and spiritual insight. And my guess is that when most, if not all of you, describe your process of coming to faith in Jesus of Nazareth as king, maybe it involves intellect, intellect and studying the scriptures and history and all that. It does for me. That's great. But my guess is that it will also involve emotional and experiential stories like falling in love, a story, a conversation, an evening when God spoke Many years in the presence of someone else who believed, a friend or your parents or a mentor. But all of that, even all of that, would still be meaningless if Jesus has not risen. But if the tomb is empty, then it makes sense why we come to faith through moments in time and through experiences and through stories because God has acted in our world in time through a story. We have uh, the simple and elegant call-response phrases that make up what we call the ancient Pascal greeting. They became precious to, to disciples of Jesus on Easter Sunday. I'm sure you know the one someone says, He is risen, and the others respond, He is risen indeed. Right. In some expressions of the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Pascal greeting is, Christ is risen. Yes, I love that. Beautiful. Without the resurrection, that tiny movement would have ended 2,000 years ago. But here we are. Here we are. Because He is risen, God is alive, death is undone, and everything matters. And in the midst of all our suffering and discontent in the aching and dying of life in a broken world, a defiant refrain rings out like church bells over everything, a reminder, a promise, Christ is risen. And you, why persist in the practices of Jesus? Why show up here amongst these people week in and week out? Why pray and study and seek and ask and knock? The answer is because Christ is risen. Truly, he is risen. And what hope is there in a world twisted by injustice and split by racism and marred by political idolatry? What faith is there for the sick and dying, the hurting, the anxious, the fretful, the lonely, the discontent, that he is risen. He promised justice and hope and peace. He promised the renewal of all things. Now in the flourishing of the kingdom of God and on a coming day on the horizon at the renewal of all things. And if the tomb is empty, then he will make everything new just like he said. If the tomb is empty, we have not been abandoned to our faithlessness, to our sin and failure, not handed over to meaninglessness, the cruel and indifferent universe, if he is risen, then salvation has come. And you, your life, your story, your family matters. You are seen by the living God because Jesus said so and everything he said is true. You are a beloved daughter, a beloved son of the creator who has made a way for broken humanity to be reconciled to him in the victory of his son Jesus. Because he is risen. All of this hangs on that truth. Today is our day of celebration, our day of recognizing with joy and awe and worship that all of this means something. We're not here telling one another a made-up story, a fairy tale. We believe that Jesus is risen. Our day to cling to the feet of the crucified man, not a ghost, not a legend, but Jesus. And in worship, say together, Christ is risen. 
Amen. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to come and speak and remind us of this truth. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.